Kurt, I would love to give you a prize because you nailed that one. Marshmallows. I have perhaps the greatest unknown fact. I've never heard that. I think that's amazing. And I'm so glad I heard that. And she was like, no, 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 they didn't. But if you think about this, you're going to say, oh, I agree. Bingo, bongo, bango. <laughs> yes, sirree. It is time for another edition of Smart Tribble. This is your host, Kurt Schneider, and your other host. You know what? You can introduce yourself as a co-host. This is your co-host, Kurt Schneider. And this is your other co-host, John Ellenthal. And we've got a, a smart drivel first for us here, Kurt. This is the first time we have ever done a part two of a podcast topic. Last week, we dug into a number of inventions that are really important to everyday life don't get the love and attention and recognition they deserve. And it would be really hard to imagine life without them. I ask for your forgiveness in advance. The topic is underrated inventions, but I may refer to them as undervalued inventions, underappreciated inventions, underestimated inventions. Fortunately, all of those words pretty much mean the same thing. So I think we'll be good. Love it, John. Let's get at it. This is a big one. Kurt, have you ever been stuck in an elevator for a long time? Yes, John, I have. Under Was it during a blackout, a brownout, a operator error? Something happened in it, and we were stuck between floors for quite a while. The elevator was invented in the 1850s. The first passenger elevator was installed in a building in 1857, the E.V. Hotwood building in New York City, which is actually, I don't think it's there anymore down in the Soho section of New York City, and it was the first passenger elevator installation. Do you know who invented the elevator, Kurt? My main man, Otis. Oh, yes, he did. And we don't mean Otis Day and the Knights. We no. mean, we mean... So hit it. We mean, uh, uh, we mean Alicia Otis. And I don't hope I'm pronouncing the man's name correctly, because not only did he invent an elevator that has made very tall buildings in urban settings possible, but... Otis today is still the number one elevator company. So he created an enduring invention and an enduring company. It wasn't until a little bit later that the safety brake was added, but that's a big invention. Can you imagine the buildings and structures that would never have been built had it not been for the elevator? We wouldn't have the Empire State Building. Kurt, no elevator, no modern city. Buildings actually were in New York and everywhere, we're cut off at six stories. And you know, the walk-ups are always yeah. six stories. You know why? Please. Because they had to figure out how to get water up there. Uh, and water always comes to its natural level. And they got the water for New York City from Kensico Dam up in Westchester, which was about six stories higher than where they were in New York. And so the water would then naturally come up to its level. They couldn't go higher for the tenements or the walk-up because there'd be no water. So water towers is another invention that doesn't get much ado. And it's kind of important because, as you pointed out, gravity is a big deal in water distribution. When did we reach the point that we were putting water towers all around the area and even on tops of buildings? They still have them today. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Elevator's a great one. I think, you know what, we take it for granted. And I think the elevator kicks the escalator's ass. Uh, the escalator is fun in a whole different way. But when you think about the impact of that invention, you know, basically, you get in a box on a string or a cable and you go up and down. 
Can you imagine being some of the first people who actually got in those elevators? They were not happy people. You're basically getting in this little tight space and you are going up and down basically on the whims of a cable, which is why the safety break was a big deal at one point. But that is where elevator music comes from. It was the first elevator music was in the 1920s and it was simply to calm the nerves of anxious elevator riders. Love that. Love that. And that's where Muzak was born? I don't know the history of the product or the company Muzak, but their category was born in the 1920s because people needed to be soothed. All right. So I have perhaps the greatest unknown fact about elevators. At least it was unknown to me until recently. I think you were going to love it, Kurt. I'm ready. The close button on elevators, the close the doors button, doesn't work. It is there to give us the illusion of control. Now, there are some jurisdictions, including New York City, where the elevator button does do something, but it is not there to help us close the elevator door. It is to give us the sense that we can press a button and something is going to happen. The opening and closing of doors is controlled on a system that is not influenced by pressing the damn closed door button. Basically, we get into an elevator, we're impatient, we're late for a meeting, we got to get somewhere, and we hit that darn button back and forth, and we are doing absolutely nothing except giving ourselves an outlet for our excessive need to control every minor detail of our lives, including how many milliseconds earlier we can make the door close. That's what that important, Kurt. Does it work? The close button. I challenge you and anyone listening to go to Google and look up the closed door button and see that it is a dummy button. I've never heard that. I think that's amazing. And I'm so glad I heard that. I wish here's an invention that they haven't made yet on the open door. Instead of having the arrows going one way or the other on it, and you never know which is which, and you invariably hit the wrong one, which is the closed one, which now I realize doesn't do anything, have it very clear that make it bigger or something that that's the open button. Because when you're in and someone's trying to run in and you want to at least fake that you're hitting the right button, you want to hit a button that says open and invariably you hit the close button, which now I know doesn't work anyway. The thing about the layout of the buttons, which of course are in numerical order, it always shocks me how long it takes me to find the button I want to press. And it should be pretty easy because it's numbered, but it seems to take me a while, which is why I appreciate these new elevators where you just punch in what floor you're going beforehand and it just takes you there. Scares me. So let's move okay, on. Can, all right. I have one. Excellent. The semicolon. <laughs> okay. Make your case for the undervalued, under-celebrated semicolon. Now, I use semicolons all the time, not because I want to flaunt the semicolon, but I think it's such an underrated invention and it needs to get its just due. Period, kicks ass, gets it everything. The ellipse, which I use all the time, gets a lot of stuff, dot, dot, dot. The colon, the semicolon. Sometimes you have two clauses that belong enough together that they should not be separated by a period, but they're separate enough in their structure and in their thought process. And in their ability to stand alone. That they need, so semicolon. So a semicolon separates two independent clauses that are so closely related that to put them in separate periods is just not right. I confess a love for the semicolon as well, and I don't miss a chance to use it. So I am overweight 
in my use of semicolons, but I'm careful in each case to make sure that it's correct. Thank you. For Not just to use something to wink at what that emoji is. I think the semicolon is getting another use case here because it's an important part of the wink, which I use quite a bit because apparently I say a lot of things where it's helpful for me to wink at the end so that you know I, I'm kidding. I think that's true. But you know what? When we took typing in high school, the home keys, A-S-D-F-J-K-L, semi. So I'm trying to look at my keyboard to see this, where the semicolon is. And you're correct. It's just to the right of the L. That's it's where you just put your east of the if L. If you take typing, that's what they teach you, the home keys. And you put your, you rest your fingers there. And from there, you can go in every direction. And I'm familiar. That's how I was taught, where you, those are the home keys. But I never committed them to memory. It's not like two all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame bun in my brain. But I know where they are physically. You mentioned the ellipse as well. Yeah. And I also like the ellipse because it's sort of a lazy way not to have to complete the thought and you can just sort of overuse it. Yeah. It's just, it's sort of a way out of a complicated sentence. But what do you consider to be the proper spacing before and after an ellipse, Kurt? Zero. Yeah. So I think what a lot, how a lot of people use the ellipse is they have no space before and they put a space after. And you can either have one space after both, or you can have no spaces, but it needs to be even. It has to be. Otherwise, you're actually bastardizing the ellipse and you're not using it as an ellipse. I wonder how many people who are listening to this hate us now for this discussion. We sound like a couple of school marms who are teaching composition. But that being said, we both care about punctuation and grammar. So we have to be us, Kurt. Who else would we be? I know you have another one. I do. And, um, and you made me think of it when you were going through JKL semicolon. And I made the comment that the semicolon is east of the the letter L. And that is because the interstate highway system, Kurt, is a woefully under-recognized invention. When you think about the fact that we've built this incredible system of roads through a successively through a variety of government programs in the early and mid parts of the 1900s, I mean, they were built for a lot of reasons. One was it's safer to drive on the highway system and then on some lesser developed road. Americans were driving more cars. So can you imagine the traffic jams of having narrower roads with bumpier surfaces? Um, How do I know if I'm going east, west or north, south, John? Because of the numbering of the roads. What do you mean? If the interstate is an even number, it runs east, west, like I-90. Whereas if or it runs, I north, get my kicks on Route 66. Uh, also east-west. Whereas I-95, which is near us, is running uh, north-south, and that is why it's an odd number. But since we're discussing different roads, what do you think is the longest stretch? It's an east-west stretch. I'll give you a hint, but you kind of probably could have figured that out since the way the country shaped. What is the longest east-west stretch on the interstate highway system, Kurt? I would say it's I-90. From where to where? From Seattle, Washington to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, because I've been on it. Kurt, I would love to give you a prize because you nailed that one. As a bonus question, would you like to guess the length of that stretch? Come within 100 miles either way. So I'm giving you a 200-mile margin here. Okay, I drove it, so I'd say 2,983. You fell within the margin of error. You've won again. I am going to send you a Smart Dribble t-shirt, so please check your mail. It's 3,020 miles. You made this trip. Where, was this a road trip you did with a bunch of friends? or? It was. Can you tell us something about it? 
after college graduation, we decided to jump into my friend's 1977 orange Caprice Classic sedan. Low profile. We had a uh, rack on top with our sleeping bags. And we, we left on June 25th from New York. And I had a flight back from San Francisco on July 28th. And that's all we knew. And we just went. And were you arrested during this time? No, but we had some fun, but uh, there was no arrest. I want to make sure that the highway system gets its complete due, because sometimes what inventions do is they spur other inventions. And leaving aside all the obvious economic development and mobility and tourism and gas stations and motels and everything, something we touched on many, many episodes ago is that the suburbs are possible because of the interstate highway system. A lot of people who lived closer to work in the cities were able to buy much bigger, less expensive homes. And that's just one additional example of how important the interstate highway system has been in our lives. Okay. That's why it gets its spot on this list. I'm tempted to ask you one more question since you were in Fuego on the longest. Would you like to guess the lowest stretch? Sure. I would say that's Death Valley, of course. I don't know what road goes through Death Valley, but the lowest stretch is actually on I-95. It's where the road goes underneath the Baltimore Harbor, the inner harbor, minus 103 feet. I've been there. We didn't have to hold our breath, but that's great. Yeah, well, I've, I've taken Amtrak through there more times than I can possibly remember, and I lose cell coverage, which is maybe one of the byproducts of the system that I can live with. We're going to ask our viewers, our listeners, to please give us your thoughts. What do you think are underrated inventions of time that at Smart Drivel, because we do promise the drivel and hope for the smart, underrated invention. It's kind of a little off the beaten path what we talked about. But if you think about this, you're going to say, oh, I agree. Neil Diamond. (laughs) So he is an underrated invention, despite the fact that Sweet Caroline is played initially at every Boston sporting event, I guess started with the Red Sox and now everywhere. You don't think that Neil Diamond, who we're considering an invention here. Okay, well, listen, I think the beauty of smart dribble is the lines are not drawn in marker. In fact, there aren't that many lines at all. So if that floats your boat, then I am here to support you, Kurt. Just listen to the song Play Me, where he uses the word brang. She brang to me. Oh my God, I can't believe you just said that. I remember a lesson my fifth grade teacher, Ms. Quinn, taught me. We were writing a composition about Thanksgiving, and I brought my paper to her desk, and it said that we brought this, and the Indians brang that. And she was like, no, 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 they didn't. And obviously, the correct word is brought with a semicolon before and after and an ellipsis between the O and the U. But I have never used the word or heard the word brang again until this very moment. Well, that was a throwback. Which I actually was part of my fourth grade orchestra, one of our concerts, and I played it on the bass fiddle. John, earlier on, you actually, which I was fascinated with, talked about the invention of left and right shoes. And that got me thinking, you know what I think is an underrated invention? And actually, it's some places, it's the lack of this invention are still in place, namely a lot of hotels in England. The single faucet 
for the cold and hot water to come out of. So that's like the opposite of exactly. the left and right shoe. It's the fusion of a left and right shoe into one shoe for both feet. And of course, how that doesn't hard make any that sense. Be, right? And you're sitting there and you're in a hotel and you want to shave or brush your teeth and you got to go hot and cold, hot, ooh, cold, hot, cold. Just have it come out of one faucet. <laughs> yes, the horrors, the horror. Um, so, yes. Do you know when Ooh, we started? Part of to, darkness, but well done. I went, I went a little Joseph Conrad on you there. I did. Binding was the big thing back then when books first came out and people would have them bound for their own use. And the richer you were, the more ornate the binding that would come with it. Yeah. The binding, as you pointed out, was a very big deal because we like to think that printing was invented, you know, back what was it, when was Gutenberg, the 1500s, thereabouts. Yeah. But the reality is the Chinese actually invented printing, but they did not invent the binding. So a lot of what they had printed from back before the 1400s was lost because the book could easily be damaged by heat and bugs and things like that. So the binding was the big deal. Maybe the binding actually goes into the category of really important but undervalued inventions. It's what's allowed books to live this long. I like that. Back to the binding. You know why? The binding doesn't get its due. It's the thing that's always there holding it together. But hey, it's not the writing. But so what? Without it, you- there are lots of inventions. Love where, that, John. Uh, I'm happy. There are lots of inventions that sort of make other things work, but don't get, you know, like the car gets a lot of love, the road, not so much love. But you kind of need both for the whole thing to really work together. What else you got, Kurt? I have number two pencils, John. Whatever happened to the number one pencil? Do you know anything about the number one pencil? I think it's darker. What is it about the number two pencil? It's just that it can be picked up by those little, the machines that read the it test has, scans? Right, it's the right stuff of graphite in the pencil. It used to be lead, but then went to graphite, obviously. Ticonderoga. Right, the right timber. I guess the right, because you go lighter. I think threes, isn't that? So number two, it's like the perfect. It's like they took graphite and said, what's the absolute best way we can translate it? Number two, John, not one, well, three. They say that that woman is really the superior being because Adam was made first and he was just sort of a rough draft before the form was perfected with women. So that may be why the number two pencil is more important than the number one pencil. As and a second child, I'm prone to believing things like that. I was that. just going to say the same thing. Me yes. too. The number two pencil is added to our list. So, Kurt, I have one for you. I may have been sensitized to this because I recently rewatched Castaway. And watching Tom Hanks on the island trying to make fire, which is obviously a pretty big deal if you want to stay warm, survive, cook things, all that kind of good stuff. And there's a scene when he gets back to Memphis. Once again, Memphis comes up. When he gets back to Memphis and he's being feted by FedEx and he, there's a party in a, in a hotel room that night and finally everyone leaves and he's alone and he's looking at the giant buffet of food that's been left and sushi is there, which is kind of funny since he ate fish for four years. He was stuck on the island, but he finds a lighter on the table, must have been lighting one of the, probably the chafing dish, not the Bunsen burner. And he's flicking it on, flicking it off, flicking it on, flicking it off. And I thought the director was a bit heavy-handed there, but the point remains the same. The ability to instantly make fire when we need it by using a match or a lighter is pretty trippy. And I was surprised to learn that the lighter was actually invented before 
the match. The lighter was invented, I believe, in like 1823 by a German chemist. And the match was invented just a few years later by a guy named John Walker, who was working on an unrelated project. Scotch. And I don't know what that project, I was just thinking, you know, I don't know what that unrelated project is. You really want to know. Maybe he was making scotch. Although I think that they called him Johnny is, back then when he's drinking, making scotch because they were yeah, more they, friends. Yeah, the history books have have formalized things for him, but he inadvertently he had some sort of stick covered in a chemical that got dragged by a piece of paper that had phosphorus on it. But leaving the science out of it, our ability to make fire instantly with the flick of a thumb or the flick of a wrist. What did we do for the? 5,000 years before the lighter or the match was invented to start the fire, just flint and steel all the time, two rocks together, what? So it's a good question. In the Boy Scouts, we had a competition and you had to have, you had flint and steel, right? right. You had a piece of flint and steel. And then you had a nest underneath with a little piece of burnt cloth or something in it that was not burning at the time. And you had to make fire by Flicking the flint and steel, flint and steel to have a spark catch on that little piece of charcoal cloth in a nest that you would then blow with a spark until it created fire. And then the fire would have to boil water. And that's when the competition ended. How'd you do? Well, there was a lot of cheating involved, not on my end, but apparently people would sneak in lighters or matches. And while you're sitting there trying to do this, they would light it. I did not. I was always a big flint and steel guy. If you didn't have modern toilet paper available to you, what would be your backup plan, Kurt? Marshmallows. <laughs> um, okay. The fact that you answered with such uh, speed makes me think that you may have considered this before. I was a Boy Scout. We were in the woods for a lot of times. We had did a lot of s'mores, but we didn't have a lot of toilet paper. Okay. We have done a wonderful job today of chatting about life. And as part of it was underrated inventions. So I think it's time to sign off. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Smart Dribble. We encourage you to rate us on Apple, to tell your friends about us, and just to let us know what you think. Yeah, please contact us at Smart Dribble on Twitter and on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. Uh, make fun of things we've said. Correct us. Lord knows we can be corrected. Share your own thoughts on the topics that we bring up. That would be wonderful and fun. Uh, we'll be sure to respond and we will be back next week with another episode of Smart Drivel. Until then, signing off. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.